Well, we want to welcome everyone to our very first ever wonderful Wednesday webinar uh, that uh, this will hopefully become a regular feature at First Church, uh, where we invite friends to come and be part of conversations that we're having uh, around important topics and uh, relevant topics for us. Uh, these, uh, in particular, will complement the, the current sermon series we're doing, uh, This Is My Story. Uh, following the, the, the webinar today live, it'll also be available uh, on our YouTube channel uh, and also to listen to on podcast. Uh, so welcome. Uh, we're glad that you're with us. Uh, we're, we're mostly going to uh, be in sort of an interview format, but uh, if we have time when we get to the end for uh, Q&A, uh, we, we will do that. And so the chat function is enabled and you're welcome to uh, offer thoughts, comments, questions that we will then pass along. Uh, so why don't we begin uh, with a word of prayer and then we'll have an introduction. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity uh, to uh, share and to learn and to grow, to be stretched. We invite uh, the blessing of your spirit to be with us. Uh, may this be a time that honors and glorifies you and uh, is a blessing to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, thank you all so much for joining us today for this uh, webinar. Um, again, you all are muted uh, intentionally. It's not that we don't want to hear your lovely voices, but we really want this to be more of a, an interview time. And so the chat is available if you have questions. I'll be monitoring that and, and keeping track of that. Um, and, and if we have time, we will get to that. Uh, today, we are so uh, fortunate to have Reverend Dr. Latricia Scriven with us. Uh, she uh, is a joy and uh, a delight and um, just a source of wisdom. And so it is truly an honor to have her time and to spend some time with her today. Um, she is the pastor at New Life United Methodist Church in Tallahassee. Uh, she is also at the same time, the executive director and pastor of uh, the Wesley Foundation at Florida A&M University. And uh, she's a wife and a mother, and she is newly ordained. She was ordained a few weeks ago um, at the annual conference meeting and at, um, at Warren Willis Camp. And so we celebrate that with her. I've had the pleasure of um, attending some MLab um, innovation workshops with her and just hearing how she is constantly brainstorming and innovating and seeking to reach out to people. Um, with the good news of the gospel and the freedom uh, that can be found. And she is also an author. She recently uh, wrote and published a children's book called When Jesus Laughs. And so this is a children's book illustrated, but then also there's an activity book. You can get these on her website, uh, which is, uh, I think, whenjesuslaughs.com. Is that That's right? That's it, or on Amazon. That's it. On Amazon. I bought this, this one's mine, and I eventually want Latricia to sign it when we can be in person and she can autograph it for me. But I also bought it for uh, my godsons and um, their brothers. And so they, they got one book to share, but they each got their own activity book because you know they couldn't share those. They had to each have their own. And, um, and so they love, uh, they lo that's currently their favorite book uh, to listen to um, in the evenings. 
so with that, um, just another kind of announcement for us today. Um, so I think certainly after maybe last night's um, debate, but also just the season that we've been in these last few months of um, seeing racial injustice um, on our TV screens and on social media and just um, really living in that and knowing that that is not a new phenomenon, that that is something that has been going on um, in our country for hundreds of years. And, um, and perhaps uh, this is a, a time of reckoning <laughs> Uh, for us, I don't know, um, where we're really grappling with that. Um, but I just want to say for m my friends on this call that are white, <laughs> um, that this time with Latricia is a gift. She is giving us her time and her wisdom. Um, I don't expect her to teach us. We have to do the work. Um, Black people, you know, people of color, indigenous folks, um, LGBTQ folks, people in our, in our culture that um, would fall into different like minority categories, um, we can't expect them to be our teachers. We have to do the work um, of Googling <laughs> and researching and reading and asking questions um, and seeking to um, educate ourselves. And then having done that work, then going and saying, hey, I have a question about this. I've read this and I'm really wrestling with this, um, but we can't expect, um, others to do our work for us. So um, in that spirit um, of that, <laughs> I'm going to turn it back over to our webinar. And uh, Vance, do you want to kind of kick us off kind of relating our question to our sermon series? Absolutely. Uh, so, so Latricia, we have been in a, a series that is going to be a long series. It's going to go all the way to Pentecost. We're calling it This Is My Story. And we're looking at uh, the whole of the Bible as a single story, that that all of it is going somewhere. That this is, this is this is a single story about God and God's love for the world and God's plan to rescue a, a broken and fallen world. And so we're we're hitting the high points, even even taking uh, this long to go through it. We're still not covering everything for sure, uh, but we're trying to hit the high points and relate it to how does how does this ancient story relate to our our stories, our current story, the, the, the world we live in, our lives now. And where we find ourselves is last couple of weeks, we've been in the book of Exodus and, and Moses and uh, God calling Moses to be the one to lead the Hebrew slaves out of, out of Egypt uh, toward freedom uh, and, a, and a promised land. And I, I know that, uh, that that's, I mean, that story has meaning to, to all people of of faith, both Christian and Jewish, but but my understanding is that it has a particular meaning in the Black Church tradition, um, and maybe a, a richer meaning, maybe a meaning that that uh, hasn't occurred to those of us who are uh, part of the Anglo tradition. So I just wondered if just wonder if you could just start us off and share a little bit about that. Oh, yes. So first, thank you both for inviting me here um, and just a chance to speak. So I'll clearly be sharing from a historical perspective and also my own experiences and thoughts individually. Um, I've actually, you know, spent time talking to some of my clergy sisters and brothers throughout the years about this narrative, right, in Exodus and ways that we disagree. 
tree or land in different places, but I'll begin um, with talking about slavery because that's where you all kind of were and slavery, race-based slavery in particular in America and how this Exodus story becomes very important in that context. So within the context of slavery in America, white people and slave owners often used the Bible and scripture, right? In particular, Ephesians, in order to say, slaves, obey your master, right? For this is right. And, you know, do it with a good heart and, and all of those things to reinforce um, an understanding of sort of this is a divine will of God, this place that you're in, in this enslavement. And what enslaved Africans did was took the scripture and created their own narrative, very largely based on the Exodus story. So they said, okay, here's this Bible, here's this scripture, here's this God that is being presented to us in many ways in order to keep us oppressed and enslaved. But da, 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 we've come on this story in Exodus about a God who is so concerned about God's people, the Israelites, that God brings them out of slavery in this narrative. So that is where we're going to hang our heads and our hats, right? Um, and so what we find is what some scholars have called an invisible institution. So there's this Christianity that exists, but there's a different Christianity that exists for the enslaved Africans. And so while they were hearing messages from slave owners, they were also going into the hush harbor or the bush harbor or the brush harbor, you know, by different names, back into the woods and practicing their own version of Christianity that really emphasized this Exodus story. That if God can redeem these people and bring these people out of um, Egyptian bondage, here we are in bondage, God can bring us out. And so in these invisible institutions, they were able to marry sort of their African rituals and history and understanding from their ancestors with this new Christianity and understanding of God that they were given and say, this is the God that we want, the one that's going to deliver us from the hands of our oppressors. And so we get things like spirituals that often have these hidden meanings, right, and hidden messages where the slave owners just think, oh, we're singing, but we're actually practicing a whole entire religion based on God bringing us out of bondage in a way that only we can understand and get. So that's kind of where I start. <laughs> Um, I don't know if you want me to keep talking, but there's there's so much and so many places where things go from there. So we have, um, you know, my mind goes to the theologian, um, he's a systematic theologian, James Cone, who in around 1969 wrote um, Black Theology and Black Power. 
And so what he pretty much says, you know, in this black power movement, in this time when, you know, civil rights and black people are trying to understand, do we have power? What kind of power do we have? Part of what James Cone is doing, and which is why it's radical for its time, is saying that we need to draw upon the work of other liberation theologians, um, mainly those from Latin America, who like um, Gustavo Gutierrez, who's saying that God is a God who has a preferential option, uh, um, who stands on the side of poor people, right? This is the God we serve, a God who says, I have a heart for the poor people among us. You need to take care of them. And so we see that in Jesus. And so what James Holmes does, it says, okay, we need a God who has a heart for the oppressed. And so if Black people are going to have any kind of power, then we have to adopt a theology that says that God is on our side which to me is the same kind of thing that the enslaved Africans did, right, in taking on the Exodus narrative. So he's saying, using again Exodus and then Jesus, we need to engage a God that is for us, that is with us, that is in us and on our side. And so later, he actually writes God of the oppressed. So this is a God who has a preferential option, if you will, for not just poor people, of people that are oppressed. And so here comes Jesus embodying that, coming in a form that flips the tables, invites people to the table while flipping over tables, right? And saying, we need to come against systems of injustice as we are advocating for the poor. Well, so my husband is um, a philosopher. And so what I understand through the years, and he is a philosopher of religion, um, which is not to be confused with a theologian, right? And so, and so while theologians are often like James Cone, trying to find out systems and figuring out how is God operating in the world, I don't know if my husband would say I'm saying this right, but I see philosophers often as looking at the arguments that we're presenting mm. and saying, does it make sense? You know, can we pick it apart? If it makes sense here, can we flip it? Does it make sense over here? What kinds of things can we say based on your argument? All right, so we get this person, William Jones, who is a philosopher of religion. And William Jones says, pretty much looking at Cohn, well, you know what, that's a great um, faith claim that God is sort of a God of the oppressed. That's good when we're talking about faith. But when we actually look at what's happening in the world, who wins, right? When we look historically, who wins? What do they look like? They look like people, they look like white people, they look like oppressed people keep being oppressed and poor people keep getting poorer, who wins? And so, uh, so William Jones, in some sense, writes a book called, uh, I'll save the title, but so he says, well, if we can look at a God who is on the side of the oppressed, can we make that same argument 
and say that when we look at what actually happens, that's not what, what side God is on at all. In fact, the title of his book is, Is God a White Racist? Because that's who seems to win, right? White people, racist people, people who oppress others. When we look at the history, particularly in America, and even today, who keeps winning? And so he's saying, okay, Black people, we can keep asking how long, how long, God, right? And so that's the beauty of the Psalms, right? We have a psalmist or psalmists who are constantly in this battle of how long, God, are we going to keep being oppressed and our enemies keep overtaking us? Okay, God, but I believe that you are powerful and you're going to have the ultimate victory and pull us from this space. Hmm. And so for me, the difficulty in America in 2020 is that when I look on the Exodus story, what makes it great is not just that God brings them out of bondage, right? Because if they just all died in the wilderness and nobody made it anywhere else, you know, they were already always complaining, you know, we in this wilderness forever. What if everybody died in the wilderness and there was never a promised land? Mm. We would look at that narrative very differently. Mm. The reason why we love this sort of Israelite story is because not only do you come from bondage, I'm splitting the sea so that you can break through, there is somewhere I'm taking you. I am taking you to this promised land. Now, full disclosure, I got some issues with the promised land and killing off all the people who actually lived there and now saying this land belongs to us because that happened to Africans too, right? And Native Americans. So I got some, so that aside, there was at least a promised land. So what happens when there is a group of people who are relying on this Exodus story as God, you did it before, you can do it again. And all we seem to see is wilderness. Mm. Mm. Sometimes I just don't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. And I have said that to engage in hope feels like an exercise in futility. Mm. And it is like Jesus crying out in the garden, my God, my God, why have you forsaken And yeah, kind of like King, I can see the promise land. I might not get there with you, but sometimes I think many people are asking, sometimes I, can I really see the promised land? Mm. It's hard when all you see is wilderness to embrace a promised land by faith when at this point, okay, it's been longer than 400 years. Like we've hit that 400 year mark, God. Mm -hmm. When are you gonna be strong enough and exercise your power enough to bring us out? And so when I look at um, the other day, actually, I saw um, a movie um, that dealt with, you know, civil rights, John Lewis. And, and I've seen, you know, the images before, and it struck me just in a different way because 
he, as in John Lewis, really focused on the fact that as they were going through sitting on these counters and people spitting at them and it, doing all the things, right, that he said, you know, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King kept telling us that when people do this, our response is to love harder and forgive more. Mm. That is so hard. Mm. Because when we keep loving harder and keep forgiving more, because the hope then and in previous years was that so that when people can understand their own religious hypocrisy, their hearts will then be changed, right? And the sanctifying grace of God will move through their hearts, change their understanding, love will abound, there will be a promised land for real, the beloved community. What do you do when that seems to not ever happen? Mm. Yeah. Can I ask you to elaborate on something? Yes. So you, you were talking uh, a few moments ago about the kind of the, the wilderness and the promised land and the promised land being a bit elusive. And, and for the, you know, in the Exodus story, the promised land was tangible. It was geographic. You know, it was a place. Right. Uh, in, in, lots of, in lots of expressions of Christianity, the promised land is heaven. You know, right. That it's, you know, that, you know, we're going to cross the Jordan someday and, and, and then the promised land is awaiting us. But it, it feels to me like you're talking about something else that, that, that it's a, that there is a promised land that is a tangible reality on this side of death. And I just, I wonder if you could, if that, if I'm right, if I'm hearing you mm -hmm. right, if you could flesh that out a bit for, you know, in the, in the black church, when, when the promised land is talked about and hoped for, what, what, what would that look like? Uh, yeah, I think, I think in many ways, <laughs> It looks like what America claimed that it was, right? Mm -hmm. A land of the free, a home of the brave for the brave, a place where everybody is equal. Um, that's what it tangibly looks like. And I know that many people tire of, you know, the phrase Black Lives Matter, but People say it because they didn't matter when the Constitution was written. It wasn't written about Black people. So freedom was not meant for people that looked like me, mm. right? And so the promised land is a beloved community on this side that honors the humanity and divinity of all people that says, that the Israelites are not the chosen, white people are not the chosen, we are the chosen. Mm. And so in many ways, America for white people was founded on this ideology of being a promised land, right? We're coming away from British rule and control. We can have freedom the way we want it to be. 
we could create this new reality for ourselves. Yeah, we got to kill off some people who were already here. But this was our land that was promised to us. Mm. And so I think that in many ways, coming me coming to grips with the fact that in, in the foundation of this land is superiority and racism at its core right and so a promised land looks like a land that is not that <laughs> a land that we can honor each other for real mm -hmm. a land that we can see color not in order to oppress but in order to understand the history and the narrative and all and the culture and all of the beautiful wonders and not so beautiful things that go into our history of living together Mm -hmm. Right, uh, a land where you know women don't have to fight patriarchy and LGBTQI communities don't have to fight you know to be free and and to marry. It is a land where people honor the humanity and divinity in each other, mm -hmm. and we can live that out. Yeah, we can fight about it, right? Because that's what families do, but we can believe it for real. And so while I appreciate heaven <laughs> and I'm grateful for it, it would be really cool if we could experience the promise on this side. That would be like super cool. And unfortunately, it feels like, you know, Hebrews 11, the giants of the faith, that didn't get to see what they were believing and having faith for, they just had to keep having faith. And so my hope is built because of faith. You know, I hate to go to the song, or maybe I love it, you know, on Jesus and blood and righteousness, right? It's because of Jesus as an embodiment of the divine who embraces us in human form and resists systems of oppression and lives in us and as us to flip the tables, speak truth to power, and hope in hopes that one day we can have an Acts 2 where every person hears in our own language. Mm. Oh. Yeah. That's beautiful. Um, I hear um, kind of the weariness of 400 years, right? Of being in the wilderness and waiting. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and not just like, like weariness of waiting, but also resisting, mm -hmm. um, resisting um, all the forces of evil and injustice and sin <laughs> that, um, that, you know, attack, you know, that attack. And, uh, and sometimes that isn't like the words and the actions of other people, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I guess I just wonder both like from a historical perspective and, and you mentioned the God, uh, the spirituals, mm -hmm. um, but kind of what are some of the practices, spiritual practices of uh, the black church, but also perhaps yourself that mm -hmm. have strengthened you in that work of resistance. <laughs> and you know what? Thank okay. you for asking me that question. I'll tell you, <laughs> I'll tell you about me. Okay. Um, and cause actually this conversation 
is helping me to identify some things that I didn't think about in the same way. That is, what I tell people, and I mean this like from the depth of my soul, mm. laughter is my superpower. Mm-hmm. Um, laughter is my superpower, and for real, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And so I had not, it had not occurred to me. So this image that's behind me, I call him laughing black Jesus. Um, and he lived in my head for a very long time. And I would tell my students about him because as he was in my head, I love to laugh. And so they actually got um, an artist, another student to paint him for me. Um, and so I was like, the whole world needs like laughing black Jesus. And eventually, we put him on canvas and used him um, to raise money also for the campus ministry. Well, I say that because laughter brings me through. And when I think of my ancestors, I really believe that in the midst of everything, they found the strength to have joy Mm. in something, even in the midst of the chaos and the pain finding a reason to have joy and knowing that laughter is about joy. It is about things being funny. And I often tell people, Jesus is not laughing just because things are funny all the time. For me, sometimes laughter is in and of itself an act of resistance, Mm -hmm. right? Joy is an act of resistance because if I allow anybody to totally take that, well, then you do kind of own me Mm. in my mind for me. Mm. And so my resistance and strength is always finding a reason to have joy. Mm. And it is needful for me because without that, I can very easily go to a dark place, right? Mm -hmm. Because without reorienting myself and connecting myself to a God. Well, I'll tell you why it's important because a white image of Jesus for many represents an image of the oppressor. Mm -hmm. In which case there can never be true power and equality there can only at most be mercy. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. so when I can embrace divinity in my own image, whether that's as a black person or as a woman, right? Um, when I can embrace divinity in my own image, I can see myself as part of the story of the divine. Mm. And sometimes I believe we mistreat people because we can't see their divinity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We see the reasons why we should other them, should hate them, the quote sin, the whatever we see, but we fail to see the divinity. Mm-hmm. And so one of the most beautiful things, and I know I'm far away from what you asked, oh. but one of the most beautiful things that came out of this, one of my clergy sisters, um, took LBJ, um, not Lyndon Baines Johnson or LeBron James, but Laughing Black Jesus, um, to her home. And her son, she has a son who is adopted who is Asian. 
and they got into a conversation of Jesus and color and just all of that and images. And he said, mommy, she, he said, mommy, can I have an Asian Jesus? And about a few weeks ago, she shared a photo on Facebook and with me that somebody in their church painted for him an Asian Jesus. Mm. What happens when we can see ourselves as a reflection of the divine, mm -hmm. that is part of the liberation narrative. And then it moves beyond how can I see me as part of the divine story, but how can I get you mm. to see me, to see him as part of the story of divinity? Mm. Mm. So, uh, I don't know if I'm going to phrase this question well, but uh, so work with me. Um, I'm super intrigued about you when you earlier you talked about you know that the African slaves had to go out into the bush in the wilderness uh, in the darkness and the secret to find the true God uh, that wasn't there in the institutional slave owner form. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, you know, there's a, I, to be honest, you know, that there, there's a part of this whole conversation is it, it painful, I think, that we're even having to make distinctions about, you know, black church, Anglo church. Um, and yet, you know, I, I, I'm sensing that there is, you know, in God's, in God's grace and work of redemption, that even out of the pain and ugliness of that, that, that God has revealed God's self to, to the black church in ways that maybe God hasn't been revealed in the white church. Um, and so I'm going to say a question that may be flawed, but, I, but hopefully you'll just go with it. I, I'm, I'm wondering what the black church knows about God and Jesus that we don't know, <laughs> right? You know, that, you know, that maybe our life experience has blinded us to that, that we need to know. Um, man yeah that's so I think that at the core the black church experience says gives us the strength to hope against hope to have that kind of joy and to be freer in expressing a wide range of emotions. Mm -hmm. So I can come to church and run around in excitement, right? And, and, and glory in what God has done. And I can experience deep pain and anger and cry out in a very real way, knowing that God is big enough to handle all of it. Mm -hmm. And so culturally, it's no secret, right, that often Black churches um, have so much emotion involved, and it is because of the depth of the emotion that is experienced in real life. And so I need a space where I can release 
and we're able to release with people in the black church tradition that don't need an explanation. Mm -hmm. So if you're weeping and crying, I don't really have to ask, are you okay? No, I'm not okay. <laughs> and it's okay that I'm not okay. Because joy comes in the morning, not just M-O-R, but M-O-U-R, morning. And as I can get this out, you know, call for the wailing women, as we can get this out, or tarry, right? If I tarry long enough, I know that God is going to show up. Even if it means I have to leave this space and go back out and watch another black man get murdered in the street by a police officer, there is some place I can go and not have to explain all of the emotions that I'm feeling right now, not have to let God off the hook, but I can cry out, why have you forsaken me? God, this does not seem right. Mm -hmm. We can talk for real about things that are happening. I remember talking to a white clergy sister about his sermon, and she was like, uh, Latricia, white people don't talk politics in church like that. I'm like, what? Like, what is black church without politics? Because where do we discuss these things and talk about our anger and frustration and the reality of this is how you contextualize theology. It is God with us. And so I think the pain helps us to know the God of the pain mm. and the God that doesn't, because privilege says that I shouldn't be in pain. And so God just needs to take this pain away, right? Mm. My experience says it may not have been taken because God didn't bring the pain somebody else did, but man, it sure is, God, sure is great to have God sitting with me in it mm. and understanding the depths of it and being okay and big enough for me to say the things that other people may not want me to say out loud, but God can handle it. Mm. And so I think that the Black church, historically, culturally, even though it's not a monolithic thing, right, has such a history and culture of expression because that is what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. The truth, God, is that I'm mad right now. And you can handle it. Mm. The truth is, I don't want to praise God in a strange land. But I will. The truth sometimes is, I don't feel like it, and I'm not. And you're big enough to handle that I'm not right now. I'm not here for it right now. <laughs> Even though I may be in the next moment. Mm -hmm. And it comes through in the music, right? Um, the kinds of music 
many of our congregations go to enjoy and enjoy and the ways that we enjoy them. A hymn, it can be the same hymn sung really differently, right? In a black church context, because what you're getting is all of the emotion. Mm -hmm. And that's why it is a dance and a conversation of amen and hallelujah. And say that again, preacher, because there is the energy of God at work in our midst through the conversation. Mm. And so even though the person that is standing before me is delivering the message, we're all conduits together of God's energy flowing through us and bringing the message. So we push, you know, we're going to push the preacher with mm. the amens and the hallelujahs and the thank you, Jesus, and the come on now, because when I say that, it's helping the preacher come to a different place in their, their, their own selves because we are all representing the spirit of God at work. Mm. And so I'm helping you to give you Give me your best by responding to what you're giving because we're all responding to God's spirit at work right here, right now. And that might make one person run around while it's making another person on their, get on their knees and weep and cry. And another person, you know, just sit in silence and all expressions are okay. Mm. Yeah. I love that image of, I mean, just really collaborating with God. Yes. <laughs> yes. With God, like in these moments of worship. Right. But even just yes. like, whether it's, you know, whether it's in a worship service or just like on your own, like having those yes. conversations with God where God is, it's personal and saying like, God, where are you right now? Yes. <laughs> you know? And yes. Yeah. So, 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 I was in a conversation about the lectionary text and um, a clergy friend was talking about, you know, when Moses is going to be delivered, you know, given the commandments and all of that. And I wish I had the, the scripture in front of me, but anyway, that it seems as though God, what God is wanting is relationship with all of the people right? This intimacy and closeness with all of the people come to me, you know, so I can give you more of myself, come up to the mountain, but the people, it's the people that are afraid. They're afraid to have that kind of amazing encounter with God. And so they're like, nah, Moses, you go, right? And so Moses goes and gets it. But what if we were not afraid to encounter God for ourselves? What if we didn't simply rely on Moses to go and now everything has to be filtered through Moses's lens? What if he had the courage to go? What amazing things could God show us that we know not of? Mm. Because we won't go. We rather get it from you. You tell me the answer. You know, my other life, I'm a professor or was a professor. And students want, you just tell us the answer to this calculus problem. And I'm saying, but there's a beauty in you loving, I call it God with your mind, but loving this with your mind enough to sit there and wrestle with it and figure it out because you gain so much more in the wrestling 
than you do just being given the answer. Mm. So now we got all these rules. That's what they had, all these rules. When what they could have had was deep relationship and understanding of the heart and mind of God that is not filtered, right? The tearing down of the veil of the temple. Now it's not just a priest. Everybody has access. But here we are with access, and we don't want to do the work mm. to get close enough to God because the, re the, 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 the real truth is we don't want transformation. Mm. We want to remain the same while using the rhetoric of being transformed. Mm. We want everybody else to be transformed. We don't want to be. That doesn't mean us. That means you. Mm. Mm. Uh, I, I just went to church, y'all. <laughs> I mean, don't got me going to a place. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I just, I mean, you just opened up something for me right there. Like, I think often in the church, we talk about like this consumer culture, right? Like, it's not just like in shopping, right? And, but I think in church often, like we show up and like, we want to, to be fed, right? We want mm -hmm. to have our, our needs met, our expectations. We want to hear the music we want to listen to, you know? And so it's very much about us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And, and our wants and needs and, and whatever. And, and let me put, that's why COVID and pandemic life has been so hard for church people. Mm -hmm. It's much easier mm -hmm. to show up in church and get the message. Mm. And it's harder to go out and be the message. Mm. <laughs> that's much harder. Mm. You know, it's easier to worship God than to follow Jesus and be Jesus for the world. That's hard work. I don't want to put in that hard work. Let me just come and sit in the pew and listen to the song and the preacher so I can go out and feel like I did something when, you know. Yeah. <laughs> hey, sorry. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, gosh. Um, no, but I just, you know, this idea that even back in the days of Moses and the people, like, like they didn't do the one to do the work of transformation either and resisting okay. that relationship. And it's hard. I don't, I don't always want to do it. No, no. And, and if I can be honest, I was listening to Bishop Curry the other day <laughs> and he was so phenomenal. You know, he's an Episcopal Bishop. Um, he was so phenomenal. I was at a, le a virtual leadership institute. I felt inspired, you know, and all of this. And he gets to the end and shares this story of a black woman and a white woman and a white woman had mistreated this black woman all of her life, you know, and literally throwing stuff into her yard. And, you know, she used the stuff to grow a garden. And so the white woman gets sick at the end of her life. There's nobody to take care of her. The black woman who is her neighbor goes over and is feeding her. And he called us to a place of love and forgiveness that in that moment, coming on the heels of Breonna Taylor and all of that, if I'm in that moment, I did not want to be transformed. Mm. God, I'm tired of you calling me to a higher level of love 
Mm-hmm. Like, when do I get to not forgive? You said 70 times seven. I'm pretty sure that's 490 times, you know, run out, even though that's not what you literally meant, Jesus, right? And so when do I get to retaliate? Mm. When do I get for it to be my turn? And I had to sit in that space and allow the spirit to work in my heart in ways that I did not want God's spirit to work. My head didn't want it, y'all. I'm telling you. My head didn't want it, but God kept doing it. Mm. And so I go to the people sitting at the counters and being jailed just to be seen as people and turning towards saying, your job is to love deeper and forgive more. Mm. That's radical. And when we, and that's why I'm convinced, I really, I was actually driving here to the, I'm in my church office, I was driving here today and I had the actual thought, what if it's actually the church that needs to be evangelized? Mm. That it's the church that's not actually preaching Jesus in the way that Jesus shows up in scripture. Mm. And we are in need Mm. of an evangelist. Mm. Okay. Maybe this is, uh, this is a question rolling in my head and maybe this is a good moment for it. Um, You know, I, I really think what, what Emily said at the beginning of this time was important that uh, the burden is on the white church to be learning. It's not the burden is not on 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 you and 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 people like you to be our teachers. Um, and yet here you are teaching us. <laughs> um, and so one, I want to I want to just acknowledge that uh, that graciousness and that generosity of spirit that you're doing that. Um, uh, you know, and you just said we need evangelists speaking truth. Uh, you've mentioned uh, Dr. King. You've mentioned James Cone. Um, who, if, if the folks that are listening to this uh, want to learn, you know, take it upon themselves to learn more. What What would you suggest? Uh, you know, what What are what are places that, that we can turn to um, be sensitized, to be informed, to be educated, to be more aware? Um. Mm-hmm. So I, I actually appreciate um, some of the work that's already happening, you know, even though there are times when I've been invited to book clubs on how to be anti-racist, I'm like, mm, I'm gonna I'm gonna pass on that. <laughs> like it just wasn't in a headspace, right? Um, I think all of those, and I think trying to hear, um, in particular, I, I like Cone because he is a systematic theologian that is black, and so we see through that particular lens, you know, and and his reading um, or writing extends from the '60s, right? So it's not just in this context. But sometimes I do think that we don't have the 
appropriate historical framing mm. that speaks to, um, you know, what made George Floyd's death such a big deal was not just George Floyd. It was all of the people that came before him mixed with being in a pandemic and so people are at home and are paying attention in ways that they haven't paid attention before. Mm -hmm. When I meet people who are deeply angry about some things, legitimately so, I know that often it comes from a place of deep pain, not just from now, but from a history, yeah. right? And so I would say um, historical movies that frame things like 13th, you know, talking uh, uh, about the 13th Amendment, so different movies that can be watched, um, things that help us, oh, I'm not saying a specific, but things that help us move from the historical to the now through the lens of Black people in particular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, and hearing the stories, allowing people the space without judgment to share their stories. Mm -hmm. I am grateful for the white friends that I have where we can listen to each other's stories. We can hear each other be angry, be frustrated, be happy, and it's okay. Mm -hmm. Part of the issue, I really believe, is that we don't have friends often outside of the ones that look like us. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to hear. Like I I'll give you, I told one of my white clergy sisters once, I forgot what we were talking about, and she shared something. And I said, you know, I'm so glad you said that because now I believe it because it's coming from you. I said, if it was a white, a random white person that told me they didn't understand X, Y, Z, I would think you were lying. I would not believe you because history says otherwise. But because it's you, I believe you. Mm -hmm. And so friendships that are real, before any reading, friendships that are real mm -hmm. help me and help us help each other to understand differently. Mm because they are either built on or building towards trust. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say, so now, you know, I'm processing the question as you're saying, as you asked it and as I'm sharing it. Um, friendships. That's key, really. And that's the problem when we only exist in our silos, is that we don't have real friendships. Even that is the thing that exists when we, you know, we'll occasionally have black church, white church, let's worship together. That's cool. But when no authentic conversation comes from it, we think that Jesus just covers it, but no. Mm. 
sometimes we've got to be willing to sit in it, sit in the discomfort, mm. right? Go visit a black church if you're a white person. Not just once, but a few times. What are, what's being experienced? What do you, you know, meet some people. I remember um, talking to another campus minister once, um, not in our conference, who said, you know, we would go to the Black Cultural Center and invite people to come and, you know, ask them to come to our service. I said, what if you just went over there and sat sometimes and you started being a part of whatever they were doing? Mm. And well, they're going to be looking at us funny. Yeah, of course they will, because they don't trust you. They don't mm. know you. But the more you go, eventually we build trust mm. and we have real relationship and conversation. But that's the hard work, Vance. Yeah. Mm. And sometimes I would dare say, even reading a book and watching a movie is much easier. Mm-hmm. They're forming a relationship mm. that takes work, that takes coming close to the mountaintop. Mm. I mean, that, I mean, to me, that just connects back to that Moses, like God wants the people close, right? Like yes. God wants friendship. God wants relationship with the people. And the people were like, no, you go Moses. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, we, you know, we did our, we did, oh, we did a service once with, uh, you know, the black church down the street. Right. Pat ourselves on the back. Right. Or worse yet, we're, we're a white church and I mean, we're diverse. We got two black people, you know, (laughs) or, you know, in reverse, we're at FAMU Wesley, we had a white student. Now, of course, we don't have no students, we barely have students of non-color, but what I mean is, we think that we're doing it because, oh, we're not. There's so much more we can be doing. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate the strides that we make as long as we don't think it stops there. Mm. Yeah. Before I get myself in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, my gosh. Well, we're nearing, we're nearing the top of the hour. Um, I, I hadn't planned to say this, but I wonder if it'd be okay. Um, I, I, uh, many know that I uh, also was a campus minister in Tallahassee um, at FSU, uh, which not everybody knows is uh, down the hill and over the tracks um, from from FAMU, which is significant uh, in that in that context, um, as as it is in many southern southern cities. Um, and and oftentimes the the, the FSU Wesley Foundation uh, was the larger, the better funded, the more favored of the two in town um, in ways that that is unfair. Um, and uh, I knew that then. I know that now. Um, I had the privilege. It wasn't always easy, but I had the privilege to spend some time around FAMU and the and the Wesley Foundation there. And I had the conviction then that that probably the most important place we could be in ministry as United Methodists and the Florida Conference was at FAMU um, because of the, the kind of students who are attracted to such a significant uh, historically black college university um, and because, because we need, uh, you know, United Methodists need um, strong young uh, black men and women to hear the call of God uh, to be leaders among us, evangelists among us. Um, 
And so I just want to say to you, Trisha, I'm just I'm just so heartened you're there. Um, that that I think uh, the students of FAMU are so fortunate to have you, and um, that that's going to mean so much to the future of Methodism, I believe, um, for all of us. So maybe a last word would be a reminder: uh, Where can we get a When Jesus Laughs book? And and is it still possible for us to order LBG portraits? How do we? Uh... Yeah, yeah. Actually, um, LBJ. I'll make it easy. It's laughingblackjesus.com. <laughs> laughingblackjesus.com. And um, then the book is whenjesuslaughs.com or Amazon. The books are also on Amazon. So. I suspect you'll see some orders uh, by the. Yeah. <laughs> I love and all of that. That whole story is really the spirit of God at work, like <laughs> the spirit of God at work in ways that I didn't expect. So, yeah. Um, so thank you for that. And so I, I will say, I want to say this just as a as a closing statement. You know, when I talk about James Cone and um, and William Jones, mm -hmm. I think that's the tension that we live in, right? the hope that cone offers that there is a god who is on our side and is with us for ultimate victory mm -hmm. and the despair of the question is god a white racist mm -hmm. right and so living in that tension of hope and despair that we see from the psalmist mm -hmm. all the time and hoping that our faith fuels hope enough for that side to win so that we can keep going and find joy in the journey and know and believe that there is ultimate victory. Mm. Yeah. That's a good hopeful word. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you for taking your time with us today. Thank you for um, sharing with us your wisdom of uh, your, not only uh, scholarly wisdom, but your lived personal experience wisdom. And um, know that I know like these conversations, like they take a toll, <laughs> right? Um, they're, you know, can be um, heavy and, and hard. Um, and especially, you know, being a, a black clergy woman, <laughs> stepping into yet another space where, you know, yes, it's a gift for you to share your wisdom with us, um, but yet that it, there is weight with that. Um, and that is emotional and um, spiritual and, and physical. And um, just thank you. Thank you profoundly for sharing your time with us today. And um, I, I see Rick clapping. <laughs> Um, and some of the others um, that um, I think I, I was taking notes about this and I know this conversation is going to um, sit with me um, in the days and weeks ahead. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. And thank you all. <laughs> Thanks to everyone who joined us. Uh, we're good to have you with us today. Uh, we will also be posting this on YouTube and on our podcast. So you'll be able to hear it again and share it with others. Yes. All right. Have a great day, friends. Thank you.